Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. And now let's look at the Eighth Commandment in Exodus uh, chapter 20, verse 15. It's a very short statement. If you are joining with us this morning, and we're glad, by the way, that you are joining with us, we'd love to have you here. We hope that you come back if you're a first-time visitor. We are in a series entitled Carving Out a Godly Culture, and we have been focusing on some specific moral convictions that, when held to by a body of people, give health and prosperity to that people, that community, that culture, even that nation. You know, we hear a lot of discussions, you hear them all the time, don't you, especially as we move more and more into the next political year about family values, and you hear uh, people discuss and debate uh, cultural values. They're very popular, these discussions, but as you know, uh, these high-sounding calls back to values often remain very vague and nebulous, and they have a sense of going nowhere because when it finally gets down to what is what are those values? It seems like we can't say what they are, either for fear of offending somebody or because we're really not sure. And the reason we're in that place is because the reality is, is values, period, are up in the air for grabs. We're in a tremendous cultural transition today. And people are struggling with what their values are going to be. And this nation today is wrestling with its morality and its cultural values for the next century. Right now, and you're part of that war. It's cultural wars that we are in, and we're fighting for those values. But I want you to know, when you open up the Word of God, values are not vague or nebulous. They're very clear and specific, and the Word of God has offered a very proven, specific, uncompromised family and cultural value statement for thousands and thousands of years, and we know it as the Ten Commandments. It was this value statement that for 150 years served as the rock-solid foundation for our American culture. It was around this value statement that much of our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, our laws were shaped and fashioned. They took their cue from this cultural value statement known as the Ten Commandments. James Madison, our fourth president, said it this way. Listen to what he said, our fourth president. We have staked the future of our country upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. That's what our fourth president said. It is this value statement, by the way, that in the last 50 years have, has been ripped off of classroom walls and has been systematically removed as the guiding moral lights of our American culture. It was King David, by the way, who asked in his day during a time of tremendous travail and trouble around his community and his kingdom, he said this in Psalm 11.3, he said, If the foundations be destroyed, what will the righteous do? Foundations are destroyed, what are the righteous going to do? And when I used to read that psalm, I thought, gosh, if the foundations of our country are destroyed, woe is me. There's a sense of panic that fills my heart, and I think, what am I to do? And here's what I know now. What I'm to do is I am 
to begin as a believer in Jesus Christ to redig the moral footings of our community and culture. And there are 10 very sure footings that we can reestablish in Little Rock, in our state, and in our nation. And they're called the Ten Commandments. Now this morning we want to look at the Eighth Commandment. If you notice there in verse 15, it's a very short, stout admonition. It just simply says, you shall not steal. You shall not steal. Before we look at it, I want to ask the question on your outline, why do people steal? Why is it that people steal? I want to offer you four suggestions. First, people steal because they have a heart problem. <laughs> they have a heart defect, and we all do. We read about that. It started with the curse that Alan mentioned a moment ago. But in Matthew 15, 19, as Jesus spoke to the people, He said, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts. It's not forced on you from the outside. You're not a victim of your own actions. It's out of the heart come evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and yes, even thefts. Thefts. People like myself love to rationalize why they need to take something that's not rightfully theirs. So we say to ourselves, so-and-so doesn't need it anyway. They've got plenty. They already have too much. That's kind of the Robin Hood philosophy of life. I have better use for it. I have a real need. They'll never miss it. See, those are the rationalizations, the covers for a very serious heart problem that leads us to take things that are not rightfully ours. Secondly, those who steal see life primarily in terms of acquiring Acquiring all they can. You see a picture of that in Luke. You might turn to the book of Luke, but there's a parable as Jesus spoke to the Pharisees about this issue of acquiring. And you see this rich man. Now, he acquired, by the way, honestly, but I'm going to make a point about those who acquire dishonest in just a moment. But in this parable, starting in verse 16 of chapter 12, it says, the land of a certain rich man was very productive. And in verse 17 it says, And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Here's this guy, he's, got this, he's been blessed with this very productive land. He's got more than he needs. He's got so much, he doesn't even know where to store it. And he asked the question, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? But here's what I want you to see. Isn't there something obvious that's missing there? If he's got so much you would think that somewhere in his heart there would be the need to share that with other people. But notice what he does. Here's how he reasons to himself. And he says, like so many people who have so much, he says, this is what I shall do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones that I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take ease and eat and drink and be merry but God said to him, you fool, you fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? Isn't it amazing that so many can go through life and keep acquiring more and more and more and more and never have any thought of sharing that and blessing a community with how God has richly provided for them Instead, they just keep piling up their investments in more and more accounts until they die and they leave it all, oftentimes to kids who have no ability to deal with it. 
Now, that's what this man did. But you know, the point is this. Many people don't have those things, but they have the same viewpoint as this man. Their whole viewpoint of life is acquiring all that I can get. And if I can't get it by honest means, then I get it by dishonest means. I'll do whatever I can to get all that I can. Then thirdly, there are those people who steal because they're basically selfish. Just basically selfish. I like the child's poem that reads, I gave a little party this afternoon at three. It was very small. Three guests in all. I, myself, and me. Myself ate all the sandwiches while I drank all the tea. And it was I who ate all the cake and then passed the pie to me. <laughs> you know, for some of us, our whole life is a party dedicated to self. And we're just passing everything we can get to me. There's no thought of others. And you know, that is the seedbed for a heart of thievery over time. Fourthly, those who steal have little belief in God's personal provision for them. Psalm 23, 1 says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Do you believe that? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In the book of Matthew, Matthew 7, as Jesus gives that great sermon on the mount, he says this in verse 25, he says, for this reason, as he speaks about God, for this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink. Maybe you are this morning. Nor for your body as to what you will put on your clothes. Is life not more than food and the body not more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more? Than these? Do you believe God can take care of you? You know, it's a wonderful moment when somebody finally comes to the deep conviction that they have a God who's looking out for them. That they are not alone. That someone is caring for them, loving them, and waiting, seeking, if they will just look to Him to provide for them. It takes all the anxiety out of life. To know that you have a heavenly father that thinks that way. Now, he's not going to give you everything you want, but he's committed to providing for you what you need. Probably the most sensational days of my life in regards to this were my days in seminary when we had nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing. This little two-bedroom apartment where there are clothes piled in the corner and two sleeping bags rolled out on the floor, that was our apartment. And... There were moments where we were reduced to absolutely nothing. And I can remember when I sent my wife out to look for a job. <laughs> and I, you know, she wanted to be a school teacher. She had trained to be a school teacher. She went down to the education department in the state of Oregon. They said, you don't even need to fill out an application. There's a two-year waiting list. And I remember the despair she came back with. And I was in despair. What do you do in a moment like this? You look to the God who says, you shall not want if you trust me. And I remember us praying there in our, our, our little dining room with nothing. And then that day going out and talking to the owner of our apartment's wife. And she said, by the way, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm a seminary student. He said, what are you doing for employment other than just working here as the, I was an apartment manager. And I said, well, 
you know, we'd like to get some jobs, but it's been really difficult. My wife's a school teacher, but she's been told, don't even apply. And she said, well, that's interesting. What does your wife specialize in? Because I'm head of the PTA at this little school over here in uh, Northeast Portland. And she said, well, special education. She said, well, isn't that a coincidence? Because the principal of our school is head of all the special education of Oregon. Why, not, why didn't she just... Well, why don't she just talk to me? And I'll make an appointment for her Monday. Monday she made the appointment. Monday she went in. Monday she had a job. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me. <laughs> Lie down where? Not in the dust. In green pastures. He leadeth me. Beside the quiet waters, He restores my soul. You see, it's a wonderful, glorious thing to know that there is a God who cares for you and that He will provide for you. But people who steal, they do so because something is wrong. In here, they got a heart problem. They see life in terms of acquiring. They're selfish and they have no belief that God could or even would provide for them if they would just simply look to Him. And that's a horrible thought to be alone and on your own in this life. If you're here this morning and you feel like that, you need to take heart. There's a God out there that cares for you. Well, the commandment, you shall not steal, may seem this morning a little distant to you. You know, when people read that, maybe when I've even read that, it conjures up images of people with masks on, with flashlights and tools, sneaking around your house at night trying to break in. But I like what the country preacher said when he was asked during an interview for this country job. Uh, the deacon board said to him, they said, Preacher, uh, do you preach against sin? And he said, you know, I really do. And not only do I preach against sin, I call it by its first names. And uh, stealing is a last name. So I want to call stealing by its first names here this morning for a while and let you get a sense of what it all means to you this morning. It's listed on your outlines, letter A through J. You can cross out J. I'm just going to go to I, give you a break this morning. <laughs> The first, of course, you might just list there as thievery. It's just simply that purposeful, premeditated act by which we see something, someone's property or possessions that don't belong to us and our nation, by the way. It costs us billions of dollars every year for the thievery that now is just commonplace in our country. Do you remember the first time you stole something? I was 10 years old. You know, it takes a lot of courage and raw nerve to steal something. It goes against your whole nature to see something that's somebody else's. But I can remember when I was 10 years old going into the A&P next door to my house with the intent to steal a box of chocolate stars. That's right, I'm a chocoholic and I needed a fix. And I thought, I don't have the money, so I'll just steal it. I just remember the incredible adrenaline rush standing in that store watching the managers and the personnel and trying to ease over there by those chocolate stars and slip them into my jacket. But it was an awful moment. Because you go against something inside of you to do that. They didn't taste good afterwards. But you know, you do it once, and it's much easier to do it again. Because that awful feeling goes away. That's because we have a heart problem. The Eighth Commandment, oftentimes falls just in this category, number one. But I want to list eight others that you don't think about. A second first name for stealing is a word called pilfering. If 
you look in Webster's Dictionary, pilfering is defined as stealing something in very small amounts. Pilfering is padding your expense account on a trip. It's adding just a little bit more so you can take a little bit more that you don't deserve. It's using the company car for personal pleasure. It's calling in sick for a day off. When you're not sick at all, you just want to do some things around the house. And so you steal a day's work from your boss. It's taking home small things that the company owns. You take on a tool. You take some stationery, some pens, some food, some clothing. It's just little things, but it's called stealing. It's loafing on the job and not working an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. But you go ahead and accept the full day's pay as if you've done the work. You see, we call that pilfering, and it's a word for a first name for stealing. You know, there are some companies that today lose more money from pilfering than public theft. Their employees are public enemy for them, number one. And I want to say this morning, if you're a Christian, you should be the best employee in your company. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't even matter if you're on the way passing through and you're just taking a job in order to get a better job. While you're there, you ought to be the most outstanding employee in the company if you name the name of Christ. God has called you to that. It says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 23, whatever you do, whatever work you do, do your work heartily, not as unto men, but for the Lord Jesus Christ whom you serve. Some of you, if you're not careful, will look at a job as something that it owes you. It owes you nothing. Your call is to be a great employee, a person who works and puts in an honest day's work for an honest day's wage, and when you accept it, you accept it as something you're proud of, not something you've pilfered. That's part of the Eighth Commandment. Thou shalt not steal. A third first name for stealing is slander. Slander. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be more desired than great riches. Did you know that? Most of you here, whether you know it or not, you really honor your name. You've worked hard at it. But for some of us, when we slander or gossip wrongly about someone... You steal their good name. You undercut their reputation. When you gossip about them, you take something from them that is more valuable to them than even riches. That they've worked sometimes years to, to earn and you can take it away in a moment with a word of gossip. It was Shakespeare who said, He who steals my purse steals trash. But he who takes from me my good name robs me of that which not enriches him, but makes me poor indeed. Be careful of how you speak of others and how you talk about them. In fact, you might even ask God today, who have I spoken ill of, inappropriately of? And then listen in the quietness of that prayer. You may find in your own life, that you've been loose 
with the reputation of another brother or sister in Christ. And let me tell you, you are handling their most precious possession. I want you to know that. Their good name. Protect it. Don't steal it. Third, or fourthly, a fourth first name for stealing is what I call unpaid debts. In Romans 13.8 it says, Owe nothing. Be a debtor to no man. And some have taken that, of course, to mean that as we've talked about before here, that you should never borrow. I don't think that's what that passage is talking about. Uh, the Scriptures do talk at places about borrowing and loaning and those kind of things. But what is on Paul's mind when you get to Romans chapter 13 is borrowing and then not repaying what you've borrowed in due time, at the right time. It's owing something and not repaying it when the bill comes due. And so when you don't pay your house payment on time, when you take out a loan from somebody and you begin to resist those regular payments that you agreed to in advance before you sign that contract, you steal from them. You steal from the electric company. You steal from the cable company. You steal from your friends when you don't repay what you've borrowed. And that can go all the way down to stuff you borrowed, just household stuff. You still got their rake in your garage. Now you just borrowed it to rake the leaves four falls ago. You know? But it's still in your garage. You stole it. You stole it. When you avoid paying someone for work they've done, you steal from them. You know, James 5 says some harsh things for employers who do that to their employees. James 5, 4 says, Behold the pay of the laborer who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you. These things crowd against you and it has now reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. <laughs> you know who comes to the aid of the laborer who hasn't been paid? It's the Lord of hosts. And you as an employer may think you got better because you shortchanged them. But God Himself has now sided against you in that kind of robbery and theft of an employee. It's stealing to not pay child support. It's stealing to not pay the alimony you agreed to. Probably the harshest words in all the New Testament of any place is directed to the man who does not take care of his household. Did you know that? 1 Timothy 5.8, men, you need to brand it in your brain. 1 Timothy 5.8. In fact, let's turn there for just a second because I want you to see it rather than just say it. This chapter is speaking to women who've been left as widows and it's talking about who should support them. But then in the midst of that discussion, I think the Apostle Paul just offers a general statement to those who lead homes and even when you've left your home and been told by the courts, you still owe, you do. So in 1 Timothy 5.8, it says, because it's a verse that's no respecter of persons here, it says, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, listen, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. He's worse than an unbeliever. And there is no excuse, no matter what your record, 
If you come into this church or in any Christian church and name the name of Christ and you've had the tragedy of a divorce in your background and there are children of whatever, you owe it to them to care for them for life, to watch over them for life. And to not do so is to rob them. And you fall into this very harsh category of being worse than an unbeliever. There's a fifth first name for stealing. I call it gambling. You know, there are two types of gambling. There's what I call the innocent kind, and then there's what I call the insidious kind. The innocent kind is where you say, hey, I'll bet you 50 cents the Razorbacks win. Or you hear kids, hey, I bet you a nickel I can outrun you down the street. Or little things like that. There's little interplays that take place all the time between people that are just a sense of fun and entertainment to them. And it's kind of innocent, and we all know it is innocent. And we don't need to make a big deal about it. But there is a more insidious kind, and I call it the whole gambling industry. Because everybody loses in that. From the casinos to the racetrack, you all lose in that. And I think the latter is nothing more than a form of theft. Now, there's some people who say, well, isn't that what the stock market's all about? I mean, the stock market's kind of a form of gambling. You bet and hope you win. And I go, you know, it's really not. There's a real difference between investing and gambling. And here's why. In investing, you are giving, you are, listen, you are giving to get based on someone else's gain. In other words, if they prosper, you're, you're giving, hoping if they prosper, you will prosper. It's not that way in gambling. In gambling, in serious gambling, in real gambling, you are giving to get based on someone else's loss and pain. Did you hear that? In other words, you only gain when they lose. And there are a lot of losers. And most of the losers can ill afford to lose anything. And you're taking their money for nothing for nothing, which I call a great definition for stealing. You see, stealing is you getting something when someone else is losing. And that's what I think the gambling industry becomes. It's getting something while other people lose and they lose big time, which is what stealing is all about. A sixth first name for stealing is deception. You know, the Hebrew word for stealing, by the way, if you looked it up in the Hebrew, it is used in other places in the Old Testament as translated as deception. And it's not used as stealing in other places. It's called deception in other places of the Old Testament. And you have to ask the question, well, how is deception stealing? Well, here's some ways, just some ways, and you can think of others. It's when you sell your house as like new, knowing that the plumbing is about to go out and the roof is in desperate need of repair. And yet you invite these people, these prospective buyers into your home and you've lowered the price just a little bit and in your enthusiasm to sell that home, you, you look at them, you go, listen, it's a steal. And what you don't realize is you're talking literally. <laughs> yeah, it is a steal because it's not like new and you didn't lower the house for any other reason than to get the maximum rather than pay for the repair of the plumbing and the new roof that these people rightly deserved. 
And when you take something like that from someone through the means of deception, you're stealing from them. It's what Primetime Live this week and their expose of uh, auto shops portrayed. Did you see that where they put the little camera under the hood and they had a $30 problem. It just rewiring a couple of things that they had taken off themselves. The car was in perfect order and they took it into auto shop after auto shop. And they watched these guys open up the hood, reach under, redo the wiring in two seconds and then call the people who weren't there and said it's a fuel pump problem or it's this problem and charge them what was supposed to be $30, charge them between five and $700 consistently every auto shop. That's why we all kind of have fear and trembling, don't we? When you take your car in, you got just a little knock in there. Because we, we live in a world where we're not sure anymore we can trust anybody. Now listen, there are some really great and honest auto mechanics. I'm not saying that everybody's a thief here. I'm just speaking about stealing in general. But there is a tremendous fear when you take your, your car in and you leave it and you just think this one little thing needs to be replaced or the wall needs to be changed and you get that hideous call about 30 minutes later. This is Joe down at the body shop. Uh, we were in there and we got down under the thingamabobby and we started removing this thing and uh, we pulled out this wiring and oh man. <laughs> oh, we're going to have to take the whole motor out. I mean, it's just this one little part only costs $14, but it's $1,000 for the labor pulling the motor and all that. And you're just crying on the other end. It's the same way when you buy into one of those promotional things where they're going to kind of, you know, uh, refresh your heating or cooling unit, you know, kind of preventative medicine. Why is it that it always costs, it was supposed to be the $49 special, but it came up the $400 ripoff. They always find something in there. And so I just kind of let mine run year after year. And I hear it in there going, uh, uh, and I go, let it die. It's cheaper. It's cheaper in the end just to let the sucker die. I go up there and just put a bullet right there, right in its head, and finish it out and buy a whole new unit. But so many times, those $49 specials, they kill my pocketbook. You know what all that is? It's the world in which we live. It's the world of deception where there's lies and gimmicks and half-truths and lying silence and promotional tricks. And it's all deception. And it's called by the Eighth Commandment, stealing. And when you do it in your company and you give off to your employees any sense of that, just stick them a little more. You're creating a whole atmosphere of theft which eventually is going to come back on you. Proverbs 20, 23 says it this way, Differing weights are an abomination to the Lord, and a false scale is not good. And according to the Scripture, God sees these deceptions and they will never escape His day of judgment. It's always going to come back. Don't, don't think you're getting away. <laughs> Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. A seventh first name for robbery it's what I call robbery of the future. Now, that's a little different one, I know. And by that, I mean your sinful actions destroy the should-have-been future of someone else. Listen, it's where you go in and you scam someone of their retirement funds for your benefit. And they're wiped out for what should have been a good future because they had worked for it their whole life. It's that unlawful divorce that steals what should have been the future 
of your family. But what should have been will no longer be because you stole it when you walked out the door. More and more children are having their future stolen from them by career-minded parents. Listen to this recent Wall Street Journal article written by Ann Simmons. She says this, Parenting in the United States used to take... Parents in the United States used to take the lead in raising children. Women were home during the day direct, to direct their children's activities and work with the schools and churches and other organizations to raise law-abiding, productive, dependable, and honest members of the next generation. And that has all changed with feminism and a maturing U.S. economy that requires two earners per family to continue a rising trend in material living standards. Since the largely volunteer network of schools, churches, and mothers at home hasn't been replaced with an adequate alternative, children are floundering in malls, movies, fast food joints, and empty houses across America. Who draws the line when parents are at work? We delude ourselves into believing that extended daycare programs, babysitters, and latchkey arrangements fill the bill. 18 years in a household with consistent discipline from parents, sets a tone that an ever-changing set of caretakers can never even hope to match. When are we going to wake up? Why do we keep deluding ourselves with an arrangement that will never work? Simmons goes on to say, what do we want? For middle-class Americans, the trade-off is between more material goods or more time at home with our offspring. When we insist on a bedroom for every child, drop $25 for a quick family meal at McDonald's, join a health club, update our wardrobe, buy a second VCR, a camcorder. We need to ask ourselves, is this accumulation of material goods the priority we want to impart to our children? Or should we pair the family budget, cut back on two full-time careers, and devote those extra hours to guiding our children and organizing the schools, churches, and other institutions to best serve our children's needs, rather than hankering after frills that so recently have crept into the necessary category in our lives? This is hardly deprivation. If we look back, I suspect many of us will remember a childhood of more time with mom and dad and fewer material goods. How many times did you go out for fast food as a kid? Did your sneakers have flashing lights on them? <laughs> Sometimes less is more. 20 years from now, our children will be grown. Will they remember the extra pair of Reeboks paid for a second full-time paycheck? Or will they remember the many times mom and dad curled up with them on the sofa to talk over a problem? expected good manners, demanded polite behavior, reviewed their homework each and every evening, and pitched in to pull together a scouting or athletic program. Your choice. Your choice. But listen, when our choice is to leave them to raise themselves, we steal their futures. We steal them. And there are kids and young adults all over America who feel like their future was stolen from them in the first 18 years of life. They have a vacuum and emptiness that goes so deep that if you could be at men's fraternity at six o'clock in the morning and see some of the guys crying their eyes out because I say to them, how do you remember their dad, your dad? And they look at me and they go, I don't remember anything, just nothing. And you know who else is gonna say that 20 years from now? The daughters. You can put it in the bank unless something changes. That's where we're headed in this ungodly age, this wicked and perverse generation. An eighth first name for robbery is 
what I call robbery of the faith. Jesus said in Matthew 18 that it would be better to have a millstone hung around your neck and cast into the sea than to keep someone from growing or finding faith in Jesus Christ. And I want you to know I'm convinced hell has a special place <laughs> for the professor who stole his student's faith from his bully pulpit because it made him have a cheap thrill of feeling like he was somebody in a closed environment where he could take advantage of young people's minds. Jesus Christ said in Matthew 18, Woe to that man through whom any stumbling block to me comes. Any. Woe to him. David Hume was an 18th century rationalist who delighted in undermining people's faith. As a Scot Scottish person, he in particular enjoyed the debates he would have with his Bible-believing mom. Now I want you to know Hume was a powerful intellectual. He was witty, he was logical, he was persuasive, and day after day he belittled his mother's faith with arguments that were so sophisticated that finally she gave up that faith. And then when news reached David Hume that his mother was on her deathbed, he came to her to comfort her. <laughs> what an irony. What an irony that an atheist, a humanist, an infidel would try to comfort someone in their oblivion. And yet there he was. And the story goes, he held his mother's hand and he said, Hold on, mother. And she looked up to him and she said, Son, there is nothing to hold on with. You took it all from me. The scripture says, Woe to him that would be a stumbling block to the little ones. If there is a path to be made, it's the path to faith. And we should encourage faith. Sometimes, however naive, we should draw people to Jesus Christ. It was so exciting to sit on my son's bed last night. And he looked up at me and he said, Dad, he's nine years old. When can I be baptized? And we got to talk a little bit. And I said, well, tell me, why do you want to be baptized? And he said, I have Jesus in my heart. And to encourage that, rather than to say, well, I think you're having an emotional experience. See, just encourage the little ones to come to Him. And thank God, by the way, for all our learning center teachers and all our student ministry teachers who give their time to encourage the highway to heaven. To encourage it. I'm so proud of them. Well, let me give you one last one. It's the ninth and final one. It's found in Malachi 3. It's the last book in the Old Testament. So if you can find Matthew, just turn back a few pages and you'll be in Malachi. But Malachi 3, and the ninth first name for stealing is robbing God. Robbing God. Malachi, this prophet, says to the people of Israel when he comes to verse 8 of chapter 3 of this letter, this closing letter of the Old Testament, he says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And God answers, in tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. 
And then he encourages them by saying in verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, and see if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. <laughs> Do you see what's there? He's wanting them to open up a whole new paradigm of life, to not be a taker, but to be a giver. And God says, there's something you owe me, and it's a tithe. And I know people say, well, I don't think you're supposed to tithe today. No, no, no. Abraham tithed long before the law. It's not just the Old Testament law. Before there was an Israel, Abraham was tithing. Moses commanded tithing. Jesus commended tithing. And so when people today ask me, well, what should I give? I say, why don't you give a tithe, a tenth of your income? And don't give it to me. Don't give it because anybody's compelling you to. But do you want to test God and see if there's a whole new world there? And I tell you, I struggle at times because people feel like, man, that's asking a lot. Is it? Is it asking a lot when the verse says, see if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing to you? Is that asking a lot? Are you robbing God? Are you? I want to close with one verse, Ephesians 4, 28. It's the opposite of stealing. And by the way, the opposite of stealing is what? It's generosity. But this is kind of the summation verse in Ephesians 4, 28. It says this, Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor performing with his own hands what is good, and then it adds, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. What a great bookend to the Eighth Commandment, which says, thou shalt not steal. <laughs> and the bookend is that thou shalt learn to love, to give generously in every walk of life. I want you to know that last Christmas... I was um, in my study. It was a Saturday morning. And it was cold and it was raining and it was sleeting. It was just miserable outside. It was just terrible. And it was dark. It was at the end of the day. And I saw this old car pull up right outside my office. And this little old lady get out. And she had trouble getting out. And she was kind of walking like this, kind of hobbling to the front. And I thought maybe she wanted in. So I was up in my office, so I walked down the stairs, and when I got to the bottom of the stairs, she was already turning away, but she had left something in the crack of the door. And I saw her get in her car, and as she drove away, she had out-of-state license plates. I thought, I wonder what that is. So I unlocked the door, and I walked out, and I walked over the door, and you know what was stuffed in that little crack? $5 bill. $5 bill. It was Christmas. And she wasn't taking she wanted to give. She wanted to give. That's what life is about. And when people embrace that, when a culture embraces that from the heart in a broad-based way, we, for the first time, begin to rebuild the broken foundations and we begin to carve out what is a godly culture. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we, we thank you for your moral constitution. We thank you for these great truths that have such wonderful applications. 
I know this one this morning stings a bit. It has a bite to it. Because it doesn't just ask us what not to do. Within this eighth commandment is a seed, a flower that wants to grow, which asks us to go beyond just not stealing, to finding the joy of giving. Giving our time, giving our lives, giving our money, giving our material things, the joy of giving life away for the glory of God. I pray as Jesus many times spoke, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.